0: We are beginning our Christmas series today, taking a break from the Gospel of John, and this morning we're looking at Isaiah chapter 9. This is a passage that many of us might know quite well, but I encourage us to come with fresh eyes and hearts and minds as we read from this chapter this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is born. with justice, and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. We thank God for this, his word to us.
1: Our weary world rejoices. Let's pray once again and ask for help as we try and unpack Uh, these great promises that God has made to us uh, in His Word. Lord, once again, uh, we come before Your Word and we ask that Your Spirit might apply the Word to our hearts and to our minds. Take away our cynicism, our doubts, our fears, our distractions, and may we engage with You in a spiritual, in a beautiful, in a practical way. May we encounter you now as we study your word about you and your good news. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, welcome to our 2023 Christmas series, but longer than normal, but we're going to go right through all five Sundays uh, in this particular month. A weary world rejoices. And we're going to look at the story of the incarnation through the eyes of various groups of people. The prophets, and we're thinking about expectation and preparation. And then we're going to think about the angels, uh, peace and proclamation. And then the shepherds, joy and celebration. Climaxing on, of course, Christmas Eve, we're going to think about the Redeemer himself, the Lord Jesus, and then finishing off on New Year's Eve, the wise men, worship and adoration. So there's a lot of study between now and then. So today we begin with the Old Testament prophets, the expectation and the preparation of their work. You see, what we've got to remember when we read the Bible is that the Bible doesn't separate the message of God on one hand from history on the other hand. Or another way of putting it is God's message is presented to us in history, in time and space, okay, in our real world. That's how He works. That's where He works. And we see this particularly, of course, in the incarnation. God, the Son, steps into time and space, our time and our space, to reveal salvation to the world. That's what he did. But before this, before he came, the Old Testament is filled with prophecies and promises about Jesus Christ. God's prophets pointed towards him again and again and again and again, so that when he came, there should, there should not have been a surprise The promises and prophecies were made. And these prophecies, of course, meant something back then in that historical context. But they also pointed towards something much, much more significant in the future. The coming, and the ministry, and the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So, let me say it again, the coming of Jesus didn't occur in some kind of vacuum. It was the fulfillment of centuries of promises and prophecies presented to us in the Old Testament. Do you know how many promises and prophecies were made about the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament? Would you have a guess? Over 300. Over 300. And Jesus fulfilled each and every one of those 300 prophecies with pinpoint precision. Pinpoint precision. And of course, that's the way it was going to be. That's the way Jesus said it was going to be. At the end of Luke's Gospel, in that famous story of Jesus meeting the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, This is what he says in verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the Scriptures concerning himself. Now, that verse is often quoted, and we quoted many, many many times, but verse 44, actually, I think, says it more explicitly. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything, I mean, everything... (laughs) Must be fulfilled. That is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. In other words, he's saying, The everything is the 300 plus prophecies. Every single one of them will be fulfilled because they're all about me. So I say again 300 prophecies fulfilled with pinpoint precision regarding his birth his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. And many of them we know and love, these prophecies. Isaiah features some of the best known. Isaiah 53, for instance. Isaiah 7 and 9 that we've looked at already and read this morning. And we're going to get to that key one of Isaiah 9, so beautiful, so powerful, and and, and necessary for us to understand what it's saying. But just before we get to that, let's have a a quick survey of some of the others. We can't do all 300, or we'll be here until tea time, but we'll give you you seven, okay? And the seven come at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. So if you have a Bible, why don't you um, open up, or you can just simply try and remember where they all are. Because at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, which deals with his birth and his pre-ministry life, seven of the prophecies are mentioned and fulfilled. I, I, I put them all up there um, for you, and some of these will be very, very well known, but but very often we forget about the significance of it all. For instance, that he would be born of a virgin—you you know that. I mean, that's going to be probably read at our Carl service on the seventeenth. Matthew one verse twenty-two. To 25. That was prophesied in Isaiah 7 verse 14. They would be born in Bethlehem. Again, that's something we all know. Matthew 2 verses 5 and 6. That was prophesied in Micah 5 verse 2. That Jesus would escape to Egypt and then return. Matthew 2 verse 15. And that was prophesied in Hosea 11 verse 1. And then the slaughter of the innocents um, in Bethlehem so that Herod would try and kill Jesus, the little baby. Again, Matthew 2, verses 17 and 18, prophesied in Jeremiah 31, 15. That he would live in Nazareth, chapter 2, 23 of Matthew's gospel, prophesied in Isaiah 11, verse 1. The ministry of John the Baptist as the forerunner of Jesus, going in now to chapter 3 of Matthew's gospel, 1 to 3, prophesied in Isaiah 40, verse 3. And in the ministry of Jesus, where people who walked in darkness would see a great light, chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, that was prophesied in Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. And we're going to return to that in a few moments' time. Seven prophecies fulfilled in the early days of the incarnation and the ministry of Jesus. And of course, seven in Jewish thinking and Biblical thinking is is the perfect number the perfect one coming in the perfect way to perfectly fulfill the perfect prophecies of the perfect Savior. Christmas and Easter and the whole of the life and ministry and work of Jesus Christ lie in the Old Testament. Written over a thousand years Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, it's all about Jesus, and He's coming. And that's why we read at the beginning of the service, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, in the, when the fullness of time had come. If you're doing R.C. Sproul's um, Advent Glory, then you read that yesterday, didn't you? think about this. Outside of time and outside of space, our great triune God made a plan to provide salvation for us in time and space. That's the glorious good news of the gospel. Now, listen to Derek Thomas, who puts it more succinctly than I could ever, this is what he says, from eternity the Lord has loved his people. Christmas is the visible demonstration of it. Calvary, the cost of it. Resurrection and ascension, the triumph and effectiveness of it. Little wonder then that creatures surrounding the Lamb's throne in heaven exclaim, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power. And wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. A sevenfold blessing, by the way. 300 prophecies fulfilled perfectly with pinpoint precision in one person. Now, what's the likelihood? of that happening. Well, you probably guessed it. Mathematicians and statisticians, did I say that properly, have made an attempt to calculate how likely it would be for actually one person to fulfill just a small number of prophecies. In fact, eight is a number that they picked. How would one person actually fulfill all eight And one of the guys, and I, listen, I'm not a mathematician or statistician, but one guy came up with a figure. One in 10 to the power of 17. Does that mean anything to you? That's one in 100 quadrillion. That's a lot of knots. But I don't think in terms of those sorts of numbers. So, I go to my old friend, Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was a and a, an ardent atheist until he was wonderfully converted. And then he goes around trying to persuade people who are atheists to believe. And this is what he says in one of his book called A Case for Christ. I imagined—now, you've got to use your imaginations. Are you with me in this? I imagined that the entire world being covered with white tiles, one and a half inches square— every bit of dry land on the whole of the planet covered in tiles, with the bottom of just one tile painted red. You getting the picture? Then I pictured a person being allowed to wander for a lifetime around all seven continents. He would be permitted to bend down only once and pick up only one Piece of tile. What are the odds? That it would be the one tile whose reverse side was painted red. Probably in and around one in one hundred quadrillion. The odds would be the se- he didn't say that by the way, I just added that in. The odds would be the same as just eight of the old testament prophecies coming true in any one person throughout. History. So either you say it's all a big con trick that religion has created, or it's all true. It's one or the other. A con trick, or it's truth. which do you think I believe it is? And which do you believe it is? A weary world rejoices. A weary world can only rejoice in Jesus. Our world, and by the way, every generation has been the same. Don't think that we're peculiar or we're worse or we're better. Every, Every generation Can be described as weary without Christ. Our world is aching. Our world is longing, waiting, looking for something else, something better, something good, something meaningful, desiring to be free, desiring to belong, desiring to be satisfied and just happy for a little, little time. Our weary world needs to be rescued from fears and pain, and loneliness, and sin, and decay, and ultimately from death. Our world needs to be rescued from the lies, and the darkness, and the depression. And in fact, you know what our our weary world needs to be rescued from? From all the things that exhaust us as we look for answers to all those problems. Don't we spend time, and money, and resources, and energy looking for something to take away the weariness. And so our weary world is exhausted. It's full of exhausted people looking for joy. We're confused. We're worn out. We're spent. We're drained. We're bored. We're fatigued. We're broken. And we will only rejoice... When Jesus rules and reigns in our hearts and in our families and in our churches and in our communities and in our world, by the way, that will happen one day perfectly in the new heaven and the new earth, but it can happen in your life right now, weary person that you are, when you know him who, who was prophesied and promised 300 times and more in the Old Testament and came and fulfilled every single prophecy with pinpoint precision. That sounds very easy. I suppose we could say, go and do that. And we could finish the service. But the problem is, the world and many, many Christians will try anything else, and everything else other than Jesus. And so over the centuries and even now, what are, we, what are we doing? Oh, politics, education, employment, economics, military power, religion, entertainment, idolatry. Have you listened to any of the commentary of what's going on in Ukraine and the Middle East about the answer All kinds of diplomatic attempts are being made and will be made. Do you know what the real answer is? The only answer to the problems of the Middle East is when Arabs and Jews fall down before the living Jesus. That's the only answer. Oh, but we'll try everything else and anything else. Our weary world rejoices in Jesus alone. A weary world rejoices in Christ alone. And so I put it to you. I put it to you so that you might put it to those that you know and love who are not in Christ. Could it be that the old, old story is in fact true? It is. Could it be that the promised one really is Jesus? It is. Could it be that the Bible is trustworthy? It is. And what about Jesus being the answer? He is. And so that leads us to um, Isaiah 9. That was a long introduction to the series, but we'll, we'll briefly deal with this. Do you know what Isaiah 9 tells me, and you, and us, and the world? God loves his people. Oh, he really does, and he's deeply concerned about our salvation and about our holiness, the state of our hearts, the health of our relationships, the quality of our worship. He's concerned about all these things, and he will not let his people keep on sinning and hurting themselves. He will not let his people get away with it forever. He will not let his people wander aimlessly in rebellion. Our Father made us, and he loves us and He knows what's best for us. He will not, He cannot allow His people to hurt themselves indefinitely. Our sin is too bad, and His love is too good. Isaiah chapters 1 to 8 is basically a commentary on the condition of the people of God in Isaiah's day, and it could be applied to every generation since. It's a list of the sins of the people of God. It's a sad catalog of gloomy sin. If you you want to read it this afternoon, why don't you? Superstition, materialism, idolatry, arrogance, poor leadership, social breakdown, immorality, drunken pleasure-seeking. Chapter 5 particularly unpacks each of those. In fact, Isaiah 5, what we have is at the beginning of it, a parable where where God comes looking for the beautiful harvest of tasty grapes uh, representing holiness, and all he found was the sour berries of sin and rebellion. It's not easy reading Isaiah 5, nor any of those chapters, but it's important teaching. But in the midst of all the doom and the gloom and and basically the description of what society is like in every generation— We have a very brief but clear message of hope in chapter 9. And as we read down those words um, earlier on in our service, notice no more gloom in verse 1. No more gloom, verse 1. Beautiful light in verse 2. People walking in darkness have seen a great light. Joy in verse 3. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. Freedom, verse 4, and peace, verse 5, as Isaiah takes the story of Gideon and uses it as an example of what will happen in the future. And all of those verses, of course, looking forward out of the doom and gloom of sin and rebellion to the coming of Jesus but how would this happen? How would this good news come? How would this change, this rescue come? It all, in a sense, turns on that one little word at the beginning of verse 6. For, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. Our hope is in a special wee baby. Our hope is in Jesus, the Christ child, 100% man, 100% God, in only a way that God can do it. Not 50% man and 50% God, totally God, totally man, in that little baby, as Caleb was telling the children earlier on. And so what do we see in this, this Savior well, you've got to see God coming to us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Not, not on a chariot, not sitting on some kind of golden throne, not coming on like a regal white horse. He, he comes as a, a baby, a child. Isaiah 7, verse 14, tells us, of course, that the uh, the virgin's child will be called Emmanuel, and here he is again presented to us in chapter nine: God in flesh. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now this isn't imagined, this isn't acted out, this is not even a parable. This is love personified. God coming to us in the incarnation. So, folks, let's take time and consider who suffered on the cross, why he suffered on the cross. Who was he? God. Why did he suffer? Because we needed rescued. Because we live in a weary world. And without him, we have no hope. And you'll see there, of course, as well pointed out, a child is born, speaks of his 100% humanity, a son given points to his 100% deity, a royal son. See God coming to us. See God meeting our deep needs. At the end of verse 6, why so many names? Look at the names he's given. He will be called. You know, how many names did you give to your children? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Why so many names? One commentator put like this, the beauty, fullness, and magnificence of his matchless person cannot be expressed by just one name. So, wonderful counselor, wisdom for our ignorance. Our great need is for wisdom because we're ignorant. Wonderful means astonishing and extraordinary, and counselor means ideal ruler, advisor, the perfect teacher. For every crisis in life, For every crisis in the world, His counsel is perfect. For all the complexities of life that maybe you're facing right now, His wisdom is perfect. He speaks in ways that we can understand, doesn't He? He speaks in ways that are just pure, beautiful, wholesome wisdom. He speaks In ways that lead us to God. And we have his undivided attention, you know, 24 7. What's life like for you right now? Is it a bit messy? Has it become messy maybe recently? The certainties of life that once you held on to, gripped tight, they're rocky, they're shaky. Do you feel lonely and hurt and anxious and doubting and weary? What's it all about? Jesus, wonderful counselor, and we can rejoice in him. He's the only one who can bring joy into a weary world. Mighty God, power to conquer our weaknesses, because not only are we ignorant, but we're also weak. It's amazing that can be said of a baby. Mighty God. Mighty. I mean, baby? Baby equals weakness. Not this baby. Not this baby. Mighty means valiant and powerful and strong. It's like a military term. Jesus fights for his people. Do you see that? Jesus fights. Jesus fights for His people, our enemies, the enemies of the church, the enemies of Christianity, and by the way, they are growing and becoming much more vocal in the world. Our enemies should be warned and should be very careful how they treat the people of God. Our enemies should be warned, and God's people should be comforted because He is mighty God. And God means fullness. The fullness of God dwells in the Lord Jesus. He can face anything. By the way, if he's not mighty God, we're fools to worship him. And if he is mighty God, we're foolish not to worship him. It's either one or the other. As I said before, I'll say it again. This is either the greatest con trick in the whole of history or it's true. The attack on Jesus is ramping up, but he's mighty God. Everlasting Father, he cares for us because we are needy people. I'm a needy person, aren't you? He cares for us as every father cares for his children. There's no Trinitarian confusion here, by the way. Don't be caught up in that. As we've been learning in John's Gospel, the Father can say of the Son, Everything I am, my Son is. Everlasting, of course, means everlasting. Before, above, beyond time. Can you even begin to think of outside of time and space? We have to if we're going to try and understand who God is. Father, He protects, He provides, He cares like any good daddy does. He's everlasting, means he's alive. You know, a dead Jesus is absolutely no use. We need a living Jesus, everlasting, living, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. We need, we need someone to bring peace into all our relationships, fixing all our broken relationships. The word Prince means he's got authority and leadership. Peace means wholeness. I think I've quoted a number of times, but you never remember anything I say, so I'll say it again. I've quoted Humpty Dumpty, you know? Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again. That actually is a parable of our broken, fallen world in which we live. Modern man... Mankind has fallen off the wall. We we are fractured and broken and hurting. We need some serious fixing. And all the king's horses around today, and all the king's men, all the political leaders, all the philosophers, all the entertainers, all the economists, all the educators can't put us back together again. But Jesus can. Only Jesus can. A con trick or the truth? Are you out of sorts with others? Is there anger and tension in some of your relationships? Are you out of sorts with yourself? In other words, you're just inside your head and heart. You are unhappy. Are you out of sorts with God? He seems way, 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 way up there. And some kind of barrier. Between you and him. The prince of peace. Bringing peace to every relationship. Lastly, and just for a moment or two, see God ruling his kingdom. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with Justice and righteousness from that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Back to verse 6, because we don't want to miss out that little phrase, the government will be on his shoulders. In other words, all the the needs and expectations of God's people, of all mankind, by the way, are met in Christ. The ruler of his people, the redeemer of his people. And in verse 7, surely stirs our souls you know, maybe we have let the familiarity of that great verse um, create a little bit of contempt in our hearts and minds. But you know, this is like a this is like a, a finale of a concert, the climax of a great symphony. Because you see, the baby Jesus, 100% God, 100% man, it's not just a child, but a son of God, and not just a son of God, but a king, and not just any old king, but the king on David's throne. And not just for now, but for ever. There's going to be no end, verse 7. Expanding, everlasting. Now, don't fall for the old trick. Oh, should look at the state of the church in the Western world. Yeah, the Western world is decadent. I think the Western world has been given over. God has given us over. If that's what you want, if you want that kind of perverted immorality and idolatry, have it. But you know that in every other part of the world, the church of Jesus Christ is growing. So don't fall for the contract that somehow, because the Western world is turning against the truth of Jesus, that somehow this is wrong. This is holistic view of the whole of God's plan and His church. He's not dead. He's not stuck. He's not struggling to keep up with the likes of you and me and our thinking. No. He's ruling and reigning, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will will fulfill all of this. His commitment is to save. His commitment is to keep. His commitment is to, to rule. you know what his commitment was to send his son into the world and into the world he came and he gave us 300 little i suppose hints and sometimes more than hints statements about where and how and when and what he would do and so that our unbelieving minds might be convinced and he came into time and he came into space and he came into a weary world and he came in to fulfill all those Old Testament scriptures so that we might be saved, so that we might be changed, so that we might rejoice. A weary world can rejoice. And that's the answer to our distress, our emptiness, our brokenness, and our weariness. The world will look everywhere else to everything else, to anyone else. And so our world today will, you know, try the drugs and, and the money and the power and the entertainment. But a weary world can rejoice only in and through Jesus. And that's the good news. And that's what we're going to celebrate and investigate over these weeks together. May God help us just to grasp this and to understand it. Lord, we're very thankful um, that you have given us such a very clear revelation of your plans. And then you came and fulfilled the plans in action in time and in space on our earth for us in flesh that God came in Jesus we thank you, too, that you've called us to respond, and so we do. We rejoice today, even though we live in a weary world. We've got weary bodies and surrounded by weary people in a weary world. But we can rejoice today because Jesus is God, and he came for us. So write the truth of all of this on our hearts and minds. Set us free from the hold and the seduction and the lies of the world. And may we worship you and adore you as we ought. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.